Good morning and welcome to the house of the Lord and those of you joining us online. Good morning to you also. We are in the book of Acts again. And before I start, I'd like to say it is part of the role of the pastor to put a congregation to work when he preaches, to stir you up, to cause you to rethink and to provoke you to think again and again about some of the things you've learned. Perhaps you have some unlearning to do. Either way, I hope I put you to work in, in that sense. We are going to consider verses 11 through 24, but we will only stand and read verses 16 through 24 to cut it down to a minute and a half. So if you have your Bibles, please turn to the Gospel according to Acts. The Gospel according to Acts. Chapter 16, and we will stand and take verses 16 through 24. Please stand for the reading. If you stand early or sit early, we get take your name down, and you'll get something in the mail. <laughs> Verse 16. <clears throat> now it happened as we went to prayer that a certain slave girl, possessed with a spirit of divination, met us, who brought her masters much profit by fortune-telling. This girl followed Paul and us and cried out, saying, These men are the servants of the Most High God, who proclaim to us the way of salvation. And this she did for many days. But Paul, greatly annoyed, turned and said to the Spirit, I command you in the name of Jesus Christ to come out of her. And he came out that very hour. But when her masters saw that their hope of profit was gone, They seized Paul and Silas and dragged them into the marketplace to the authorities. And they brought them to the magistrates and said, These men, being Jews, exceedingly trouble our city. And they teach customs which are not lawful for us, being Romans, to receive or observe. Then the multitude rose up together against them. And the magistrates tore off their clothes and commanded them to be beaten with rods. And when they had laid many stripes on them, they threw them into prison, commanding the jailer to keep them securely. Having received such a charge, he put them into the inner prison and fastened their feet in stocks. Please be seated. Christians versus culture. That's what we are also going to consider this morning. But we back up now to verse 11. And if you remember from our earlier consideration in chapter 16, Paul received a vision of a Macedonian man calling for him to come over to Macedonia and help. And so he leaves what we know as modern Turkey and crosses the sea and arrives in what we know as modern Greece, uh, Philippi, ultimately. And uh, there's where we pick it up. Therefore, sailing, verse 11. From Troas, we ran a straight course to Samotras, and the next day came to Neapolis. Now, they landed at Samotras to avoid travel at night by sea, and uh, the whole trip's going to be about 120 miles. It says here, straight course. Well, this time it was. Not always is it a straight course. These little things stick out to us from Scripture. Sometimes in serving the Lord, it is a straight course. Acts 27, though, where Paul will suffer yet another shipwreck, 
We read, when he had put to sea from there, when we had put to sea from there, we sailed under the shelter of Cyprus because the winds were contrary. Yeah, that's life. That's life in ministry. And the difference between life and ministry and life is one counts forever and to the good. And the other doesn't count so much to the good. We Christians are hopefully supposed to make this life count for the Lord. That's one way we glorify him. In verse 12, and from there to Philippi, which is the foremost city of that part of Macedonia, a colony. And we were staying in that city for some days. When Luke writes, he's done his research well. He puts these little things in there that are very important. They were important to him and the Holy Spirit, and they should be important to us. This is about 20 years after Pentecost, about 20 years after Christ ascends to heaven and, you know, the cross, the resurrection and the ascension. And they arrive where the vision had directed them to be. They are compliant with the Holy Spirit. But this place, Philippi, named after the father of the one called Alexander the Great, there was a famous battle in this place that has a lot to do with uh, Western history. Augustus Caesar and Mark Anthony against Brutus and Cassius, and they were two big battles, and ultimately Augustus and Mark Anthony prevailed. Well, this being a Roman colony, as Luke points out, that's significant too. Populated by Roman citizens, uh, retired military would have been there. Uh, people not born in Rome, many of them, but were soldiers and uh, were given citizenship, uh, were able to avoid taxes. They had a lot of perks. This was Rome away from Rome, and it functioned as a military outpost. All that to say, these folks were loyal to Rome. And so when Paul comes up in there, preaching another, uh, another king, Christ, uh, there's going to be a, a cultural clash. There are going to be problems. Now, the city is, of course, close to the sea. The Roman roads lead in and out. It is a good place to preach the gospel of Jesus Christ. He mentions we were staying in that city for some days. Well, once again, Paul knew where to be. And this is where he was supposed to be right now. And he is going to squeeze out of this every drop of ministry that he could. He, he tended to do that wherever he went. I... Uh, I hope that uh, all pastors try to squeeze out of ministry every drop of importance given by God to them that they can. And I would like to see uh, that be the case of every Christian, that we squeeze out of our lives service unto the Lord that is meaningful. Uh, that will include much as that is not meaningful too, but such is life. We overcome that and keep going. In verse 13... And on the Sabbath day, we went out of the city to the riverside, where prayer was customarily made, and we sat down and spoke to the women who met there. Well, of course, they familiarized themselves with the city, and one of the things Paul would have done right away is, well, where's the synagogue? Well, there was no synagogue in Philippi. There was not a, a large enough Jewish presence here in this city, you need ten men to start a synagogue, and they didn't have that. Ten Jewish men. 
And that's why the women are, are he sat down and spoke to the women. There were no men to speak to. And uh, these were women who believed in uh, Judaism. None of them yet believed that Christ was Messiah, but by the time Paul gets through, of course, there will be those who will. So no official synagogue, and we sat down and spoke to the women who met there. This would form in Paul's heart a beautiful memory that will last probably the rest of his life. You say, well, how do you know that? Well, ten years later thereabout, when he writes the Philippian letter, he brings this up. And he brings it up in a very uh, dear and human way. In Philippians chapter 1, beginning in verse 3, and this is, the church at Philippi was one of the good churches in the New Testament. They were, there are bad churches, and there are good ones. And it's always nice to come across one of the good ones. Well, anyway, he writes to them. Uh, he's in jail, and he's writing to this church that he started. And we're reading about the start of this church here in chapter 16. He says, I thank my God upon every remembrance of you. Well, it gets a little bit sweeter. Always in every prayer of mine, making request for you all with joy for your fellowship in the gospel from the first day until now. That gives me goosebumps. You know how hard it is to maintain a good relationship in ministry over the years? And here he writes to this Philippian church that has grown by this time, by the time he writes the letter. And he says to them, I remember that first time with you. I remember that time by the riverside when it was just the women. And we came and we preached Christ and we got a participation prize, a beatdown. That was the participation prize of Paul and Silas. And we'll talk about why Luke and Titus and Timothy escaped the beating. In verse 14, now a certain woman named Lydia heard us. She was a seller of purple from the city of Thyatira, who worshiped God, the Lord opened her heart to heed the things spoken by Paul. Boy, there's a lot here. This certain woman named Lydia heard us. When she woke up that morning, she had no idea she'd end up in what we know as the Bible. As a hero of the faith. As an extraordinary character in Scripture. More people know Lydia by name than the emperors of China, than most of the Caesars of Rome. Because she's faithful. Because the Lord opened her heart. She was a seller of purple from the city of Tyre. It's kind of cute how that sounds. He's outside selling purple to people. Uh, but uh, here she is, 230 miles from her home in Thyatira, which is far even by today's standards. Now the purple, uh, to sell purple dyes and purple goods, uh, these are expensive items back then. They'd have to s- squeeze the dye from shellfish, and, and you know, that's just a, it's a big deal. This is an indica- one of several indications. She had money. She was well-to-do. She was an established businesswoman. And here, that, her success in the world did not interfere with her desire for God. In fact, her desire for God just increases. She and those in this group, those of her household even, will be the first converts of Paul in Philippi and on European soil. 
There are others that are in Europe that were there at Pentecost, but these will be the first converts straight out hearing the gospel in this part of the world. Now, <clears throat> there is going to be, eventually, a church in the city she is from, Thyatira. It will later become riff with immorality and idolatry, and it will garner the Lord's severe rebuke. And you can read about that in Revelation chapter 2. Uh, it is a scathing rebuke on that church for her alliance with iniquity for her appreciation of leaven in the local church. And the Lord wasn't having it. It says here that she worshipped God. Well, that's usually a designation, according to how the New Testament writers wrote, that she was a convert to Judaism. She was a Gentile, like the Ethiopian eunuch, a Gentile who became uh, converted uh, to Judaism. And then, like the Ethiopian eunuch, she is going to be converted to Christ. She's going to find out your Messiah has come. And his name is Jesus of Nazareth. Well, his name is Jesus, and we know him from Nazareth. It says the Lord opened her heart to heed the things spoken by Paul. We know God looks for open hearts. And it is, uh, you know, we want our hearts to be open to him. But between the world and Satan and ourselves, there is conflict and a struggle. Well, just face it. Don't let it uh, knock you out of, the, out of the fight. You can overcome it. Many have, and many are, and many do, and many will. This uh, heart, however, has to be unlocked by us. We can lock, we have the power to lock God out of our hearts, and thus the important statement in to the church at Laodicea, I stand at the door and I knock. Well, why doesn't he come in? Because he's not going to intrude. That door is a barrier between he and they. And that was a whole church. Well, we are called to preach, all of us. We're called to preach to the whomsoevers, whomsoever will. God is long-suffering, willing that none should perish. Again, we read that God desires all men to be saved. That's what God wants. But that's not what men want. The disciples of Jesus, they themselves were instructed in the Old Testament by Jesus himself. And yet, that still wasn't enough, according to Jesus. It wasn't enough that he taught them. There had to be more. And it took a special act of what you could say was an inward opening of their hearts before they could grasp the deeper truth. Not that they're talking about, not talking about salvation. We're talking about understanding the scripture to be useful to God. It does not come automatic. And if you think it comes automatically, you're puffed up with pride. You think that there's just something about you that's so special. And that is not the case. It's actually quite the opposite. Paul said, I count all the things from Judaism that I learned in the scholarly schools as rubbish for the knowledge of Jesus Christ. And so we read, to back up my statement, or to tell you why I make this, these statements, Luke 24, verse 45, speaking of Jesus, and he opened their understanding that they might comprehend the scriptures. This is after the resurrection. They had been with him for three years, and it wasn't enough. And so he opens up their understanding. When Paul preaches here in Philippi, 
Lydia heard and she believed and she was baptized, immediately putting her house at the disposal of Paul and his entourage, but not without a highly significant act from God. None of that would have happened without this one thing that we have recorded here in verse 14. The Lord opened her heart to heed the things spoken by Paul. Not enough to hear. You have to heed. You have to act. You have to be moved. Paul, um, Peter, said, I won't stop stirring you up. You may have heard these things many times, but I'm going to repeat them. Because you need to be stirred up. All of us do. Lydia was not too depraved. To receive the gospel. I don't believe. I know a lot of good brothers and sisters uh, believe that. And I vehemently uh, disagree with them. With respect. I do not believe we are too depraved. To respond to the gospel. Else God would never say to us. Come let us reason. There would never be these invitations given. It wouldn't make any sense. But anyway. I don't want to take up too much time going on that. But I do believe. That. She needed the Holy Spirit to get to the next level of her faith, as we all do. And we need refreshings from the Spirit of God as the years. Because the Scripture can become old to you. As, any, as our the human nature, familiarity can breed contempt. We, that saying, well, there's truth in it. You can be so uh, well read in the Scripture that it's no longer exciting you. And that, there, you better learn how to fight. You better learn how to overcome that because that will swallow you up and you would end up being one that used to be on fire for the Lord. Uh, this I'm um, speaking from experience. And I have great righteous joy in overcoming that little tidbit of nonsense out of my own flesh. Well, again, we can reason enough to receive the gospel message. We cannot go far, though, into the faith without the divine, divine openings of our heart. Second Peter chapter 3, Peter said, Grow in the grace and knowledge of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. You've got to grow in this. Nothing grows automatically except trouble. Bad things seem to grow automatically. But the good things, they take, they take work. Second Timothy chapter 1, Paul writing to Timothy, he says, Therefore I remind you, stir up the gift. There is, he is provoking Timothy in a, in a positive way, stirring him up to work, to think, to apply himself, and not take it for granted, well, you know, I laid hands on Paul, uh, on Timothy earlier, he's good. That is not what is happening. He says, therefore, I remind you, stir up the gift of God, which is in you through the laying on of my hands. And can we appreciate this? Do you appreciate the reality of these things? I hope they're more than just Bible stories for ancient Christians, from ancient Christians. I hope they're things that are real to us, that we embrace and are going to do something with. Uh, you know, well, let's take verse 15. And when she and her household were baptized, she begged us, saying, If you have judged me to be faithful to the Lord, come to my house and stay. So she persuaded us. <laughs> I like how Luke adds, adds that, because he's part of the party. Thus, thus the, he's using the pronoun us and we. Uh, Paul knew 
that baptism by water was something commanded by Jesus Christ for those who believe in Jesus Christ. However, he also knew it was not essential for salvation. And so he writes later to the Corinthians, he says, For Christ did not send me to baptize, but to preach the gospel, not with the wisdom of words, lest the cross of Christ should be made of no effect. Otherwise you have people just saying, Well, I was baptized, I don't have to. I don't have to receive the preaching and the lessons of Scripture and grow in the grace and knowledge and be stirred up. I'm baptized. I'm good. Do we not know of people who think that way? Someone sprinkled water on me when I was an infant. Well, infants can sprinkle water on themselves. They don't, they don't need any assistance. And so that's nothing to boast about. If you're going to boast, boast in this, that you know the Lord, that His grace is upon you. And that's not from a position of pride. You know, you can't say, I'm so unworthy. Imagine if I said, I'm so unworthy, I can't preach. I would be telling the Holy Spirit, your investments in me don't count. I'm so unworthy. You see, that, that kind of mock um, self-loathing doesn't work well for Christ or anyone else. We need to be able to understand, you know, God's given this to me. Whatever it is that he's given to me, and I'm going to stir it up. I'm going to put it to use. And I will not be puffed up with pride. And I will not allow these things to dim, which is one of the lessons behind, behind the articles that the priests had inside of the, the tabernacle, uh, the, 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 the clippers to trim the wicks so that the lamp would burn brighter and, and other tools they had. Well, anyway, uh, you know a tool that we often miss that was a part of the temple worship? Buckets. Who hauled the water? That was for the laver of the priests before they could go into the holy place to minister every day. Somebody had to haul that water, and they had to have something to haul it in. And, uh, you know, same thing. You, you go to a church. Uh, uh, who cleans the church? Who does the work in there? Who takes the cobwebs away and the bathrooms? And who refills the hand sanitizer and puts tissues out for people? Uh, who's doing this? Levites. New Testament Levites. Servants of the Lord belonging to a royal priesthood. Well, what if, what if this Apostle Paul, who is saying, I believe in baptism, he's going to baptize these folks. He believes in it, he understands his theology, and he's also a man led by the Spirit. Not just, well, I know the Bible. Who needs the leading of the Holy Spirit? I don't think any sane Christian would say that. Paul was prohibited from going to Bithynia and to Asia Minor. We read about that last chapter, uh, uh, last section of this chapter. And what would have happened had he gone anyway? Well, then, what about Philippi and Thessalonica and Berea and Athens and Corinth? These places he's going to hit. God's not unmindful of the places when he forbade I don't want you taking the gospel there. I'll deal with them later. And remember... Lydia is from Thyatira, which was in one of the regions that Paul was prohibited from going to. God can reach people from cities anywhere they are. He doesn't have to have us, but he wants us. And so, in the book of Acts, we have watched disciples wait for the Lord, and then God used them. Those who wait upon the Lord. How long? That's my problem with that verse. Those who wait upon the Lord shall renew their strength. Well, what are we talking? Months? Years? Couldn't be talking decades. The main thing is God 
being submitted to. Well, her household here, that would consist likely of family members, <clears throat> servants, and or slaves. They're not always the same thing. You could, they could hire people who weren't slaves, and she could buy slaves in those days. And, uh, you know, that's not always a bad thing because a slave on an auction block could end up in the wrong household or the good one. So let's not be too puffy with this. There's a lot more to it, but that's the gist. And the entire household is baptized, and we see this in, in the book of Acts. And we say, why is that? Well, because the hand of God was sweeping through desperate hearts, hearts that were open to him. And if we don't see it today, it's not God's fault. It's not God's fault that we have a culture that is more interested in selfies than selflessness in Christ. Where are the broken and contrite hearts that would come to Christ? You young adults, you young you teens, what are you going to be for the world? You're going to get sucked under by the gibberish that they spur out when it comes to rejecting Christ? You see, they could, the world can be very solid in a lot of areas, very attractive. You go off to a university and you're learning a discipline, you can be very impressed by things, and you should be. But when they mess with Christ, it's on. You don't put up with that. That's called the sacredness of God. No man has any right to attack the God of truth. We arrive at this conclusion that he is the God of truth by examining what he has to say about himself and history next to it and other things. Psalm 51, the sacrifices of God are a broken spirit, a broken and contrite heart. On these, God, O oh God, you will not despise. Yeah, the person that's going to stand up in front of God and say, I am a sinner. I break your laws. I'm messed up like that. I need you to help me. That's the one God will take in. But the one that says, you know what? Do you know who I am? Yeah, I know where you're going. <laughs> she begged us, saying, if you have judged me to be faithful to the Lord, come to my house and stay. Well, who would say, no, you're not faithful? <laughs> I mean, she kinda, the way she worded it, the way Luke has it, is she, she cornered them. I mean, if you think I'm faithful, then come to my house. What is supposed Well, you're not faithful when I come to your <clears throat> She had this hunger and thirst for righteousness that Jesus spoke of years ago in the Sermon on the Mount. So she persuaded us, he says. What a beautiful persuasion this is. They said, yeah, of course. You know, if I were in that crowd, I would say, I don't know. Okay. What am I going to eat? I don't know. You might be bad at cooking. But that's why I wasn't there. One of the reasons why. The other reasons are my parents' fault. Anyway, verse 16, Now it happened as we went to prayer that a certain slave girl possessed with a spirit of divination met us who brought her masters much profit by fortune-telling. On the way to church. <clears throat> That's where they're going. Now it happened as we went to prayer to the assembly, the local assembly. This girl that has a gift from hell. Satan can gift people too. They're not good gifts, ever. She served hell's purpose by just cheapening the gospel message. The only thing she brought was leaven, an element of corruption. 
She is an unauthorized speaker of God's truth. Deuteronomy 18, verses 9 through 12, we won't take the time to go over it, but it just lays out what God thinks about this kind of behavior in a human being. If the demon that possessed her is allowed to tell about Christ, what will he tell? Because eventually, he's going to pounce. By his nature, by his nature of being an enemy of God, this is what an unholy alliance looks like, one of the ways it looks, and it is always harmful to the righteous. This girl was a slave, and Paul made no attempt to do anything about that as it was with Onesimus, as it was with the slaves that would have been in the house of Lydia, if there were, and there very likely were. The apostles made no effort to deal with social problems, only with spiritual problems, which deals with social problems. This is very important stuff that I'm telling us. Man's first sin separated man from God. That was a spiritual problem. Man's next sin episode recorded separated man from man when Cain murdered his brother because his brother did church better than him. Cain murdered Abel because Cain had a spiritual problem which showed up in a social environment. A social gospel puts the cart before the horse. A spiritual gospel gets... It, where it should be. And uh, the social gospel is mainly concerned with human relationships, human with human. And God can be, you know, maybe he's optional. And the apostles, they knew better. And so they always dealt with the spiritual problem, understanding that if you want to change the way people think about life, in a, in, if they're thinking in a negative way, then you've got to change the way they think about God. It's got to line up with the revelation of God, which we call the Bible. Now, there is a social side to the gospel, and many missionaries have been pioneers in dealing with uh, social problems, but always with the spiritual up front. Otherwise, they just become, you know, what is a profit of man if you gain the world, lose your soul? Missionaries have built hospitals, orphanages, leper colonies. Um, Dr. Paul Brand, if you read Fearfully and Wonderfully Made or In His Image, uh, those are two books, Philip Yancey and Paul Brand. Uh, It's remarkable how devout a Christian he was in India dealing with leprosy patients and how, for him, everything tied into the Lord, uh, all of his work. The primary, however, is to win souls. Get a person right with God, and they will soon do better with men. Unfortunately, there are imposters. And if you lack discernment, even if you're just a good person, you can miss it. And we pray for discernment, spiritual discernment. But there are a lot of fake old Christians out there that pretend, that pretend to be right with God and trustworthy individuals, and they are not. Uh, Jesus said, you'll know them by their fruits. Well, when enough people get saved, 
the conscience of a society is awakened and social reforms follow. This is historical. This is fact. When enough people are anti-Christ, the conscience is seared. And society plunges into debauchery. And we're looking at this globally now. Thank you, Internet. I mean, the Internet's good things. The other day, I, I couldn't find my keys. I Googled it. And I'm good. So there are good things. <laughs> Don't want to say it's all bad. But, you know, be careful. Are you at the Tower of Babel? Or are you just using uh, knowledge as a tool instead of knowledge using you? It's a very easy thing for a Christian to absorb information, Bible data, without the Spirit and become a know-it-all and a pain in the neck versus one that is abiding in Christ. Let's go on to verse 17. This girl, remember she's demon-possessed, followed Paul and us and cried out saying, These men are the servants of the Most High God who proclaim to us the way of salvation. I get a little bit ahead of myself, but you know, once Paul cast this demon out, there would have been, if this were today, somebody in the church would say, why did you do that? They were preaching the gospel. They were helping us along. They just don't get it. And so when the Holy Spirit says, do you understand? Do you get it? Whatever the topic may be, it's a serious moment for us. Because if we say, I'm not getting it, well, then work hard in the spirit to get it. Don't just think that, oh yeah, I got it because I'm just all of that. I'm just intelligent. You can get straight A's in school all your life and still be the dumbest Christian that ever set foot in a church. You can't do anything. Jesus said, without me, you can do nothing of any value to him. Well, this is devil made. This messenger is a false messenger. And she inserts herself. She's a lass. She's probably 12 years old or something. She doesn't know what's going on. But the demon does. And he is able to speak through her. And she joins, mingles herself in with the preaching of the messengers who are true. Which will muddy up everything. And coming from her, the truth of the gospel was being lined up with those who are anti-Christ. And that's why they're going to get the beating in this. Well, these men are, she says, these men are servants of the Most High God. Now, we Christians read this and we think, oh, well, she's preaching, you know, it's the gospel. Wait a minute. How do you know she's not talking about Zeus? She's not specifying what God. To a pagan, to an idolater, their gods are Most High also. You see, that's part of the problem. She doesn't know what she's talking about. How would the people listening to her receive this? Well, they would probably think she's talking about Zeus. There's there's not enough detail, not enough information here to let us know exactly what Paul was preaching, which is, nor is there salvation in any other name, for there is no other name by which we must be saved. Well, regardless, she was filled with an unholy spirit, an impure spirit, a, a dangerous spirit, both to the soul and the flesh. It says, who proclaimed to us the way of salvation. That's what she said. They're telling us how to be saved, these guys. She echoed what they were preaching. They didn't need her to do that. They didn't want her to do that. They certainly did not need to have her validate what they were saying 
because she was a local, what, that they, therefore she can endorse them? They didn't. There's a problem. And if allowed to continue, their message and the perception of their ministry would have been corrupted. The devil infiltrates churches just like he infiltrates the hearts of anybody he can. And he does it by gaining trust. He comes in and he nests and he sounds, he's, the words that he says sound like they're true until you begin to press, press the matter. And an alliance with evil is corruption of good. And so Paul will write, had already written the Galatians, a little leaven, a little bit of corruption, a little bit of that thing that will spread and take over ruins the entire thing. A little leaven leavens the whole lump. That is a doctrinal position. And if you think that, oh no, as long as they put Jesus' name on it and I feel good about it, it's okay. No, it's not. What's the Bible say about it? You have people rolling around on the floor, barking like a dog, saying this is the Holy Spirit. Somebody ought to throw ice water on them. First off, who's getting the attention when they start such theatrics? Is Christ now the center of attention in that assembly, or are they? Uh, Yeah, but it feels good. May the Lord rebuke that spirit. If that's your criteria, if that's your criteria for truth and obedience and serving Christ, that it feels good, you're out of line. Because this caning that they're about to receive ain't going to feel good. And what did they do to deserve it? They confronted the culture of the world that is in opposition to Christ. Who needs Christ if men can create cultures that are acceptable to God? Well, they can't. Paul couldn't put his finger on it, but this irritated him. Verse 18. And this she did for many days. But Paul... Greatly annoyed, turned and said to the spirit, I command you in the name of Jesus Christ to come out of her. And he came out that very hour. And she did this for many days. Even the great apostle was hard to determine sometimes who's demon possessed and who's just evil and who's just dumb. Who's well-meaning but wrong, who's right. It's not always black and white. Uh, King Manasseh. Look at the evil he did. But there's no mention of him being demon-possessed. He was just evil. And yet here's this lass messing with the preaching. That's the devil's work. The devil, you know, he has his people that can inflict harm like, you know, your Adolf Putins and things like that. But he also has those that can just come and spoil the gospel. And that's the one he values the most. And so this is a righteous irritation. But Paul, after many days, greatly annoyed. It's like, duh, I should have got this. This is the devil. And once he realized, comes to that realization, he acts upon it. It can annoy a pastor when believers are wowed by ministries in Jesus' name that do not adhere to Jesus' word. And it does annoy a pastor when it's, oh, you've got to just read this book. You've got to see this. You've got to do this. I don't have to do any of that. I might, but I don't have to. And pastors, they are often turned on for not putting up with such things. As somebody would have said, what could be wrong with that? She's preaching the God. He's helping them. No, she is not. Today, today uh, the news media would spin this whole thing to say that Jews come into town and take the livelihood of a hard-working man. Uh, and then they, that's how they would have spun it. 
Well, um, anyway, it says that he turned and said to the spirit. Now notice, he's speaking to the spirit, not the girl. When Jesus raised the little girl from the dead, he said, little girl, I, com- I command you, you know, rise again. This being the antithesis, he has a, a, a lass who is demon-possessed, practicing channeling the spirit world speaking through her. And Paul addresses the spirit, the demon. When demons told the truth about Jesus, Jesus told them to be quiet. The actual Greek is to put a muzzle on it. You get this picture of this demon putting a muzzle on. Well, I do. Mark 1, the demon speaks, let us alone. They still say this. Go somewhere and preach Christ. They're going to try to get you to leave them alone. One way or another. He says, what have we to do with you, Jesus of Nazareth? I would love to have heard their tone. Was there a disgust in that tone mixed with fear? Because, you know, they're, they're quite obnoxious. At times Christ threw demons out of people. But before they did, they, throw, they threw the lad into the fire. as sort of a parting shot. He says, did you come to destroy us? I know who you are. The Holy One of God. But Jesus rebuked him saying, be quiet and come out of him. I'm not talking to you. You get lost. And that should be largely our response. God does not want to hear anything a demon has to say about anything. Sports or God. Whatever it may be. And neither should we. We shouldn't Oh, no, this is so fascinating. We don't study about uh, pagans and cults and things like that just to satisfy our fascination. We do it, to, if, if we do it at all, is to be n- not versed enough to deal with people caught in that stuff. He says, I command you in the name of Jesus, and in verse 18, Jesus of Nazareth, to come out of her. <clears throat> and he came out that very hour. Exercising the evil spirit cut the source, silenced the source. He went right to it. The devil must not be allowed to preach Christ without the people of Christ rising up against him. That is what we are supposed to do. And letting the devil tell the truth is in no way a victory. Because again, sooner or later, he's going to pounce. That's promised. Zerubbabel, when he led the Jews back to Israel, one group, and they took on the building of the temple, the adversaries, which is Satan spiritually, the adversaries of the Jews wanted to join them in building the the temple. Zerubbabel says, beat it. I should read that. Ezra chapter 4. It pays to memorize where the verses and books are. That after Chronicles, second one, there's Ezra, right on schedule. And this is what the story says. Now, when the adversaries of Judah and Benjamin heard that the descendants of the captivity were building the temple of Yahweh, God of Israel, they came to Zerubbabel and the heads of their father's houses and said to them, Let us build with you, for we seek your God as you do. And we have sacrificed to him since the days of Eshadon, the king of Assyria, brought us here. But Zerubbabel and Jeshua 
And the rest of the heads of the fathers' houses of Israel said to them, You may do nothing with us to build a house for our God, but we alone will build the Lord Yahweh's house in Israel, as King Cyrus, the king of Persia, has commanded. And so what Zerubbabel is saying, you guys are false believers. You're Samaritans. You've been brought in by the Assyrians to the northern, which once was the northern kingdom, and you have a fake religion. And you're trying to boast to us, say, we sacrifice too. You're not sacrifice to the same God. You say you are, but you're not. Because the scripture has laid out how you're supposed to sacrifice and how you're supposed to live, and you're not doing it. And this kind of attitude is lacking in many a well-meaning Christian. And I think usually the key, the key to having no discernment are emotions unchecked. If it just feels good. That is not an excuse. Acts chapter 8, Simon the sorcerer tried to pull a similar thing. Sell me this Holy Spirit. And what did Peter say? Aside from, you know, you're poisoned in bitterness and bound in iniquity. He says, you have neither part nor portion in this matter, for your heart is not right in the sight of God. You don't care how the person feels about that. A rebuke is meant to hurt. Uh, because the person is doing something that is that harmful to others and even themselves. So let's just briefly talk about possession. I see we're almost out of time. And oppression. Christians can be oppressed by demonic forces. Not possessed, but oppressed. Satan can mess with your head. Give you abnormal fears, anxieties, depressions. And you can either resist those things and continue on, or you can not resist and be halted. Paul writes and says, And I, lest I should be exalted above measure by the abundance of the revelations, a thorn in the flesh was given to me, a messenger of Satan, to buffet me, lest I should be exalted above measure. And so there's an outward attack of Satan on Paul. It wasn't internal. Paul is, of course, in no way possessed. Well, verse 19 uh, but when her masters saw that their hope of profit was gone, they seized Paul and Silas and dragged them into the marketplace to the authorities. Well, <clears throat> money was more important in principle with these people. They, in fairness to them and not justifying it for a moment, they didn't see a problem with a person being a channel for a spiritual realm. They had no problem with that. And why would they? Unless someone comes along and explains it to them. Now, only twice in the book of Acts do we read about Gentiles spearheading the attack on the church, on Christians. In both times, it is money-related. Demetrius, will meet him later. Here at Philippi is one, and then in Ephesus with Demetrius is another one. And so there were those that were more interested in their profit and loss than the person's eternal state. Now, another interesting thing is Paul could stop a demon from corrupting the message, but he couldn't stop men from beating him. See, Christianity is not a magic wand. Verse 20, And they brought them to the magistrates and said, These men, being Jews, exceedingly trouble our city. So Satan drops what we call the race card to stir up local government to do the dirty work. This may explain why Timothy, Luke, and Titus, and others who are with Paul are not arrested and abused because they're not viewed as Jews. And certainly Titus and Luke were not, and G T uh, Timothy, of course, being partial. So uh, and Jews 
being uncommon in this region. These are devout Romans, loyal to Rome, and uh, they did not like the monotheism of Judaism, that this one God and all your gods are fake, and uh, they didn't care for the Jewish lifestyle. Verse 21, <clears throat> continuing with the charges, and they teach customs that are not lawful for us being Romans. <clears throat> well, I'm going to have to speed this a little bit and give you, I don't like doing this, but it fits here. Here's three things about a clash with Christ and culture, Christ versus culture. God is never out of style. He does not change because there's nothing about him that needs improvement or alterations. He will not conform to anyone. And so, number one, in this clash of Christ versus culture, God is never out of style. The same yesterday, today, and forever. And if he had to develop, he's not good enough to be our God. But he is good enough. The second one is, error remains error, no matter how popular it is in a culture. Man can write laws that are sin. Well, we have one now where you're saying, uh, you know, people of the same sex can be married. Well, error remains error regardless of how popular it is to people. And we can say, you know, we really don't care for your laws, but we care about your soul. And that's why we're telling you this. You can like it or you can lump it, but either way, you're going to stand before the Lord. The third one is God's word does not cave into those in conflict with its demands. God does not say, oh, you, oh, you didn't care for that one? You should have no other gods before me. You, you didn't like that. You want to have other gods before Okay, well, let's work with this. He does not do that. Contrary to culture, the gospel of Christ has no respect for what people come up with about God, about Christ, about his word, about his church. Things that belong to him do just that. And because he doesn't come down and start punching people in their noses, they think they're getting away with it. And nobody gets away with it, and every cemetery preaches that to people. When the word is mixed with the world, when the world is mixed with Christianity, it instantly becomes an official act of leaven. Instantly. It is corruption going on. God is never impressed by man-made religions, and that offends Many people outside of him offends many churchgoers. He's not impressed by man-made religions, nor is he impressed by the man-made morals. Morals are the mores, the laws of man. There are good ones and there are bad ones. There are biblical ones, there are non-biblical ones. Truth is irreconcilable and intolerant of falsity, and the light and darkness cannot dwell together. So again, what is legal with men may be sinful to God. Verse 22. Then the multitude rose up together against them, and the magistrates tore off their clothes and commanded them to be beaten with rods. Well, the magistrates didn't tear off the magistrates' clothes. They tore off the clothes of the disciples because they wanted open flesh to feel the sting of the cane. Later, Paul will write, three times I was beaten with rods. This is one of them. Once I was stoned, and he doesn't mean with beverage, Three times I was shipwrecked. A night and a day I have been in the deep. And that's before the shipwreck that takes place in Acts chapter 27. This man is, to hell, this man was a monster. And of course, to the Christian 
And to God, he is a messenger. And God singles out the messenger to the messenger of the church at Ephesus, to the messenger of the church at Sardis, to the messenger of the church. Each church, the pastor is singled out and held accountable first. If he is allowing some Jezebel in the congregation like Thyatira was doing, and God's going to deal with him, and God's going to deal with that congregation too. Verse 23, and when he had laid many stripes on them, and when they had laid many stripes on them, they threw them into prison, commanding the jailer to keep them securely. Here's the participation prize. He participated in Christianity, and he gets beaten. Now the jailer is under orders to place them in maximum security. Which you say, why? What did they do wrong? Well, they went against the culture. Verse 24. Having received such a charge, he put them into the inner prison and fastened their feet in stocks. He kept them bound. What was Luke and Timothy and Titus and the rest of them doing when this was happening? Just, it's an easy one. What would you be doing? Praying. That's what they did. Were their prayers answered? Well, we're going to find out they were next chapter, next section. Let's pray. Our Father, that we would be strong enough to stand against any culture that stands against you. That we would have nerve enough to say, no, I don't believe in that. That we would be strong enough to say, I disagree with that. That we would be faithful enough to say, I side with God through his word in Jesus Christ, through the Holy Spirit, through the glory of the Father. And I believe in the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. And I believe in the resurrection of the just and the unjust. I believe there is an accountability. I believe that God doesn't have to explain to me pain. But I know that God will take away all pain. And so this is what I believe amongst many things. And if you don't care for it, I'm not changing for you. This is Christianity. And we should not be ashamed of it. We have the truth. We have the life. And we are to do something with it. And if you've been listening, and you have been part of this world culture, where you have not crowned Christ Lord of all, you have an opportunity right now, because you are a sinner. You have missed the commandments of God. You're guilty of that. And you're either going to pay up a price you can't afford, or you're going to be pardoned. It is up to you. If you would like to be pardoned, if you want Christ to say, listen, I died to take your punishment so that you could be pardoned, but you have to come to me by faith. It does not activate without faith, for without faith it is impossible to please God. If you say, Lord Jesus, I ask you to forgive me. I am a sinner, and I give my life to you right here, right now, and I don't plan to take it back. I ask you to be my Lord and my Savior from this day forward. Now, Lord, if anyone has made this prayer this morning, give them the nerve to come forward and profess their faith out loud. And these things we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.